Alina, are you fake texting? It's super important. Ditwit, blubber, oddman, tweak! Anglophies. Gettle's gone? Well done, Russia. Not words you hear often from political commentators. <laughs> oh, I might as well just growl. That'd be about it. I hear an awful lot of judgment in your voice. Welcome to episode six of Anglophies, Internet, uh, where we will be talking about everything Jane Austen. I'm Raiden. I'm Alina. And, and I I'm had Kaylee. one job to do. <laughs> And this is the second time we're recording this intro because somebody forgot to hit the record button. And that somebody may or may not be named Alina. Maybe. It was super important, but I just forgot to do it. You were really distracted by that fake texting, weren't you? <laughs> okay, so before we get into Austin Palooza 2013, we have a couple of updates to previous episodes um we have release dates for hannibal which is premiering on april 4th and stoker which had a limited release in the u.s on march 1st and we don't actually know when everybody else is gonna get it but we talked about that in the award show podcast with cleo and because, and we're, we're totally going to take credit for this because we were bitching about and demanding a release date for the Joss Whedon Much Ado About Nothing. So you're welcome, Internet. That premieres on June 7th. Yay. Yay. And we'll be linking the trailer to that in the show notes where I, I've seen some people expressing some reservations about Amy Acker, but Reed Diamond... It looks like he's going to be an excellent Don Pedro. And Coulson lives! Coulson lives. Coulson lives officially as Coulson will live in the upcoming S.H.I.E.L.D. TV show. That's right. That's been officially confirmed. Yes. Um, so Clark Gregg continues to draw a paycheck, for which we are very happy. Because that means he can continue to tweet adorably at his wife. Which is really cute. <laughs> Who's his wife? Uh, is she an actor? Gray. Really? Really? Wow. Okay. I didn't know that. I didn't know. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're actually recording? Yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, so a couple of months ago was the 200th anniversary of Pride, the publication of Pride and Prejudice. So I have spent the past month watching as many of the Jane Austen adaptations as I possibly could, much to the amusement and occasional delight of my roommate. And I actually read Pride and Prejudice, so you should be proud about that. <clears throat> I've never read it before. <laughs> You're a fake Jane Austen fan. I'm a fake Jane Austen <laughs> fan. I'm a fake geek. It's people like you who need to weed out of the Austen world. That's Are you right. sure you really exist? You're a fake a lot of things. <laughs> We're not I've actually been, here. I've been accused of being a sock puppet, so. <laughs> this is a fake podcast. This is a fake podcast. <laughs> I'm a fake lawyer. I'm a fake American. I'm a fake. Well, I, I am a fake redhead. But, <laughs> um, so, we, we have a bit of an outline. So, let's talk about our favorite and least favorite novel or what we love about Austin. All right. 
Okay, I'll start. Um, <clears throat> it's actually a lot easier for me to talk about my least favorite Austin bid because it's very easy to pick out. I don't like Mansfield Park. <laughs> I think Fanny Price is the most bland, boring. I've been known to say that she may be the dictionary definition of the word milk toast. I think her sister Susan, in about three mentions between two paragraphs, is a more interesting character than Fanny was in the entire novel. Um, so that's the one I'm probably never going to reread. I read it. I read it once and left it there, and not because there's just nothing interesting there. So that's my least favorite Austen novel. Most favorite is hard because I really enjoy both Persuasion and Northanger Abbey, and those have some great adaptations that we'll talk about later. So I'll just save my adulations for then. <laughs> I'm so excited that other people really like Northanger Abbey because it's my all-time favorite Austen novel, and when I studied it in university, everyone thought that that was just a really stupid choice. It's wonderful. I love it. It's such a great pastiche in all of those sort of over-the-top, melodramatic, gothic novels of the period. And if you're familiar with the work, I think that makes the book even funnier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I watched the 2007 Northanger Abbey last night, and that was a whole thing, and we'll get into that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I never, I never read it, and I never seen any adaptations of it, and I loved it! It was adorable! Yay! I think adorable describes it pretty accurately. Yeah. Um, And I really... My first exposure to Jane Austen was the Emma Thompson um, 1995 Sense and Sensibility, which I love. And I love Pride and Prejudice. But I really, really love Emma. Um, (laughs) Because it's also adorable and sweet and takes the the a girl who's totally wrong genre savvy to a whole level that that I adore. So I think I'm gonna have to go with Emma. But before we get into the books, um, we probably we really want to talk about some of the more recent things happen, happening in the world of Austin. Mm-hmm. And there are a couple. Um, <laughs> they're quite different. And because Raiden and I are rabbit fangirls, we're gonna start with the Lizzie Bennet Diaries. <laughs> Um, so the Lizzie Bennet Diaries are a video blog, um, YouTube series that is a modern adaptation of Pride and Prejudice told through Lizzie and her video blogs. It's produced by, uh, Hank Green of the Nerdfighter Greens. And, um, it's been going on for about a year. It started last spring, right? think so I, I just got into it like um two months ago and um it wraps up at the end of this month the last episode will be posted on march 28th and i think um, you're right it premiered on april 9th 2012 yeah and it's gonna have exactly 100 episodes mm-hmm. not including the q a's and the yeah, no, special um and what what I really like about this adaptation is they kind of approach the the challenge of taking a story, the story of Pride and Prejudice, which is very rooted in, I mean, the, the conflicts are very rooted in landed gentry problems. Yeah. And the morality of, of its time, really. Of the early 19th century. Yeah. And taking those and figuring out a way to update them so that they're more or less realistic, some of them 
their updates work more than others. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, by saying that it's uh, a weblog series, it's done as if Lizzie Bennett kept a weblog. So it's first person. Um, and there's the conceit is that, you know, Lizzie Bennett is this actual person and the viewers of the show are actually the viewers of her weblog. And the other characters, you know, walk in and out of her videos, literally. <laughs> mm-hmm. And for the characters who don't, who wouldn't normally show up, like her mother never actually physically shows up in the, in the videos, she dresses up in costume. Yeah, Lizzie, the Lizzie character dresses up and it's called costume theater. And uh, her Catherine de Berg is probably my favorite. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> she has a little toy dog that is now the daughter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's quite... Uh, some of the things they do are quite delightful. Yeah. And one of the things that that I really think that that this particular series did incredibly well is it took the character of Lydia, who in the book is just sort of this annoying thing that flutters around and then fucks everything up. And turns her into a three-dimensional character with an actual inner life. And largely, her... yeah, largely through the use of supplementary videos. In that mm-hmm. um, some of the characters, particularly um, the Lydia character, has her own weblog. No, it doesn't run the entire span of the rest of the show. These videos kind of show up as needed. And... Um, I mean, even before Lydia spun off onto her own blog, I really liked how the writing and the actress made her a whole person mm-hmm. and made her incredibly sympathetic, I thought. And I'd like to mention that this isn't just going on on YouTube. They, the producers of the show, Hank Green and Bernie Sue, they really took this immersive social media approach. The characters have... Twitter, in-character Twitter accounts and Tumblr accounts, um, and they will make Twitter conversations that reference the episodes, maybe before even the episode posted, so you'll know something's going to happen in the episode. Well, I mean, if you've read the books, you know, anyway, but in terms of the structure, they'll they really pull you in, and I think it's, you know, as an experiment, it was fairly successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there are some... Legitimate complaints. Mm-hmm. Um, Courtney Milan basically started her Tumblr to talk about the Lizzie Bennett Diaries. <laughs> and now that it's wrapping up, she's like, I don't know what I'm going to do with my Tumblr anymore. I'm so confused. <laughs> now, Kaylee, you, you, haven't, you don't watch it, do you? I stopped watching it around the time that Lizzie thought it was appropriate to drag Charlotte in front of a webcam and shame her for making the decision to go and work for Mr. Collins. <laughs> uh, it incredibly pissed me off. Wait, okay, some background here. I'm about one of six people in the young adult blogging world that doesn't like John Green. Mm-hmm. And as such, and my, my co-blogger on the book Lantern doesn't like John Green, and as such, a significant portion of our traffic come from people who want to find out stuff on the Vlogbrothers and discover the week that we wrote critics, critics, critiques on them. And we wrote critiques on the Lizzie Bennett Diaries, which got linked to by one of the writers of the Lizzie Bennett Diaries, which got reblogged by one of the actresses in it who said something about how we should be cool and then she wouldn't have to punch us in the face. Oh. Mm. So that was partly the reason I gave it watching. There are part of the reasons I didn't think it worked as an adaptation. And I've written why I didn't think it worked. So, so 
granted, I haven't seen it since I stopped watching it, so I can't judge the entire piece as a whole, so I'm really not the right person. Well, well there's this. been things that work and don't work since as well. Now, um, to give our viewers who don't watch a little context, in the book, Ricky uh, Collins, and his name is not Richard, I don't think, in the book. Um, I don't think we know what it is. Yeah, he, Mr. Collins is this distant cousin who's going to inherit uh, the Bennett estate after the father passes away. So the mother really hopes that he'll marry one of the daughters, that way it stays in the family. But he's not the most attractive personality-wise, attractive person. So he proposes to Lizzie, and she turns him down because she really can't imagine being content in a marriage with him. And, And he ends up marrying Lizzie's friend, Charlotte. In the show... They've decided they, they they modernized it in a way that I think worked really well with the marriage offer now actually being a job offer for a girl who's got student loans and debt and her, whose family is is in a precarious financial position, which I think was actually a pretty good way. You know, you can't it you can't make it all about marriage and relationships because people the relationships don't quite work that way anymore. So I thought the job offer bit was actually a very clever bit of adapting. Mm-hmm. One of their some of the things they didn't adapt so cleverly, and we'll get to that. But this one worked, and in the end, it was the friend who takes the job, and the conversation, rather than being about, I believe happiness in marriage is a matter of chance, is now how can you do this, you know, soul sucking job that is not the creative outlet we talked about, and Charlotte going, well, it's money. This is the real world. Right. We all need these jobs. See, to me, that didn't work. The point, well, the, the, the reaction Charlotte had, I thought, was pretty dead on. But Lizzie's sort of going for the whole, oh, what about my integrity thing? But then talking about how much they're struggling for money, where it's very seldom mentioned in the show of her actually, you know, looking to get a job to contribute to the family. And that was something that my co-blogger catcher brought up, we thought was a pretty big sticking point for this series, was you would sort of adapt it, but keep so much of the stuff in terms of a woman's role of the Austin period, and that didn't work for me at all. But well, just... one of one of the reasons that Lizzie didn't want to take the job, other than it was a soul-sucking job, and you would get to do produce videos on changing illumination globes, how to change a light bulb, is that she would have to leave school, and she wouldn't be able to finish her degree. And I also feel like, I actually think it's pretty accurate, like faithful to the original text, where it is kind of selfish of Lizzie to turn Mr. Collins down. She's, her parents can't support her and her sisters, and certainly can't after their father is gone. So for her to turn down this really practical, good offer of marriage is kind of selfish. Mm-hmm. So I think for the Lizzie of the Lizzie Bennet Diaries to pass up a job when her family could really use money is an equivalency, is a good equivalency. I didn't think it was particularly equivalent for her to drag her supposed best friend in front of a camera to show thousands of people how incredibly disappointed she was in her friend for selling out. I thought that was incredibly cheap. Well, let's get into that, because that is a part of a broader complaint of the, sh- the things uh, the writers do in order to fit the world into this weblog format do they always work or not? And I think the consensus is, well, no, they actually, n- not always. Let's face it, not always. Not always. Yeah, there there are some things that the fictional Lizzie has, po- like, you have to sort of twist your brain around a little bit to, but some of the episodes, if we accept the conceit that this is the blog of a real person, that gets posted. Why? Why? Why would you post that? Mm-hmm. And narrative-wise, they're necessary things, but 
it doesn't always work in terms of wh- why would you post why would you put that up on the internet and mostly i just kind of go with the well it's needed for the story so i'm just gonna go with it mm-hmm. um which is kind of how i feel about Stephen moffat and doctor who at this point is i will just enjoy it minute to minute and i'm not gonna try and apply logic to it because why <laughs> I think I have a very similar outlook. I'm very, I tend to be very forgiving of what my entertainment does in order, like I can suspend my disbelief fairly easily, but I can see where, you know, the opinion like yours, Kaylee, or like what Courtney Milan uh, posted on her Tumblr, you know, where I, people who basically say, well, I shouldn't really have to just pretend that this is something we do, that people do. That's, that's a valid point. You know, when you want your show to be in a specific format, it's your job to make it work in that format. You can't just say, well, we want it to be a first-person weblog. Okay, but for sometimes we're going to have to pretend it's just a TV show. And I think one of the interesting things, since they're, they haven't been, they're not filming in real time, but they're filming in chunks. So I think I saw from Bernie Sue, one of the executive producers, that they're usually no more than six weeks out on filming. Like they filmed all of the finale stuff mm-hmm. like three or four weeks ago. Um, that they can respond to the critiques. And there have been a number of episodes that it recently that well, normally you would have said, why Why would you post this? Where somewhat specifically Lydia on camera said, no, I want you to post this. So mm-hmm. at least they're, they're throwing something out there that you can latch on to as something to hook your suspension of disbelief on. Right. Um, and... I'd like to talk, kind of move off the format, but talk about one of the things in the adaptation that didn't quite work for me, the way that, say, the Ricky Collins job offer worked for me. And that's um, Darcy as a successful entrepreneur. And here's why. They, Darcy, in order, the equivalency they did to Darcy being this rich landed gentry is that Darcy's now a, a rich young CEO. But the scenes in which, in the original, halfway through the book, Darcy proposes to Elizabeth in a very condescending and insulting way of, you know, you're just beneath me, beneath my station. My family expects me to marry a certain way. And I was really curious how they were going to do that in the in the web series and like what was going to be the equivalency. But then they basically did it verbatim. And it didn't work for me the least bit. So he's a successful business partner whose family is probably also from, you know, from some sort of money. Who and she's kind of a middle class girl. Like, who cares? What what is this world you live in where you know, like my family expects me? What? It made zero sense for me. Like it's translating I, the entire British class system to modern day America just doesn't work. But yeah, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And I I also saw a post from the executive producer going yeah <clears throat> we we tried that but here's that... the thing i think <laughs> it was an work. easy fix especially considering the uh the what they did in terms of the lydia scandal equivalency mm-hmm. what would have worked is instead of making him a successful entrepreneur he should have been an up-and-coming rising star politician 
Ooh. Because if he yeah. was, you know, the candidate for Congress with probably, you know, aspirations of being president one day or whatever you want to, however you want to couch it, then he would care who he married and the kind of things that would come up when people look into her background and specifically the kind of scandal that her sister mm-hmm. later got gets involved with. It would all make so much more sense. If I don't know if you would be able to get an aspiring politician in front of a webcam, for, could you imagine the sort of expose some local newspaper would do on that? Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. How much, how much more sense would that make in terms of conflict? It would also make much more sense about why he'd want to help her out secretly, mm-hmm. as he does in the book. And it's not just because, oh, well, I will suffer in silence. No, you don't. <laughs> um, which I guess brings us to the scandal. And yeah. you left before that, so I I don't know if you know what they did with the, the Lydia scandal. She knows no, I was told about it on Twitter by a couple of people. Yeah. Okay. Well, Raiden, why don't you go ahead? And fill us um. In. So, the the scan. I mean, the like the challenge the challenge of of updating this to modern day America was to find something that Lydia could do or Lydia or could happen to Lydia that would fuck up the entire family. And I mean, the, the reality is there just really isn't that much. much Why don't we mention what it is in the books for those who have in the, in the books, Lydia traipses off to Brighton with some friends of the family to hang out with the officers. And Lizzie's like, dad, she is, you can't let her go. She's going to totally, like, embarrass everybody. And her dad's like, look, Lydia is not going to be content until she has embarrassed us in some ridiculous manner, so we may as well just get it over with. Which is kind of the failing of Mr. Bennett as a parent. Mm-hmm. And she ends up running off with George Wickham, saying, we're going to Gretna Green, we're totally eloping. And they make it as far as London, and Wickham has no intention of actually marrying her because... Oh, <laughs> so in other words, it's it's one of it's an fallen woman scandal. It's a fallen woman scandal. They've clearly had sex before marriage, and when this gets out, it's going to screw up the marriage prospects for all the rest of the family, for right. all the rest of her sisters. Um, so she has basically destroyed her family's prospects after her father's death. So it's pretty obvious why you can't just map it one to one. To modern life. Yeah. So, um, what happens in the Lizzie Bennet diaries is she gets involved with Wickham at her 21st birthday party, birthday trip to Vegas, um, which is, you know, pretty accurate. And then um, he, and there's, I, I have to give props to. Mary Kate, who plays Lydia, because she plays this so well. She's a really good actress. We're going to go back and talk about those videos more in detail, because, yeah, those were amazingly Um, done. But we have a series of the Lydia videos where she's with Wickham, and he's manipulating her. I mean, he's basically Grima worm-tonguing her to and i didn't come up with that on my own somebody on tumblr did oh but that's so uh, accurate <laughs> it's so accurate he he green worm tongues her into feeling that her sisters are against her and nobody is on her side except for him and he loves her 
And like he manipulates her into admitting that she loved him on camera. And then he blurts it out on camera. Um, I mean, it's seriously, it's creepy to watch. Mm-hmm. And then he convinces her to tape them having sex. And then the next thing is that there was a web page put up that you could pre-order the Lydia Bennett sex tape. YouTube star Lydia Bennett reveals all. Right. Um, so it's a sex tape scandal, which I thought as scandals go is a good enough equivalency for the show. Like this is something that would follow her for the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. And this is where it come, my idea comes in that we're da- Darcy politician. This is something which can interfere with the darcy Lizzie relationship. This is something where somebody who's in politics could say, oh God, this could seriously compromise. Like if I marry a girl whose sister has a sex tape, it's stupid, but it could seriously compromise my chances of being elected, right? Mm-hmm. Like you could see that happening. Whereas... With Darcy being a businessman and Lizzie going, you know, oh no, my family, now he's too embarrassed. What? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and kind of the the solution to the sex tape problem was weird. I mean, it wasn't so much that the Bennets were just sitting around crying because there was there, there wasn't anything Lizzie could do and there really wasn't anything Jane could do other than be there for Lydia once Lydia found out and the video where Lydia finds out about the sex tape is seriously heartbreaking mm-hmm. um, and it is mentioned that Mr. Bennett has a private detective friend who's working on it it kind of implied that it's pro bono because we know that they don't have any money so they can't afford lawyers um but I don't know if, if if this was my kid, then I would sell a kidney or something to get a lawyer to pull the the, the page down, which wouldn't be that hard. And Courtney Milan, who if if you guys don't know who Courtney by you guys, I mean, the Internet don't know who <laughs> Courtney Milan is. She's a romance novelist, but she's also a lawyer or I think she's a lawyer. Um and she's one of my favorites, and um, her Turner Brothers series is fantastic. Um, but she kind of went through the legal steps that it would take to pull the pull the website down, which wouldn't be that hard. Instead, we have Darcy kind of wandering around Orange County looking for Wickham, for, for Wickham with kind of the implied, and when I find him, I will kill him. Which, you know, is very enjoyable. But that's that's where that is. Yeah. Um, and let's talk about how we know that Darcy is wandering around Orange County. And that's one of the things that really doesn't work is that there was a second short supplementary videos uh, the where Georgiana Darcy, who's a slightly bigger character here than she was in the books. Oh, considerably bigger. Considerably, yeah. She... Um, she works for her brother's company, which is here called Pemberley Digital, because get it, Pemberley was the estate in the books. Um, and apparently they developed a new app that records uh, video conferences and such, and she's demoing it, but she's getting involved in the search for Wickham and then posting that as demos for the app on the official company channel. 
that probably made the least sense of anything they've done. Yeah. Really, it doesn't. So yeah, and I mean, it, I there's been some follow up for well, the Domino app just posts what is more emo- most emotionally relevant, and there's been like um, press releases. I don't know if you can hear the air quotes in the press releases, <laughs> but it, they're there. I promise. Um, they didn't kind of expect Domino to do that, which is why you should never have apps that can think for themselves, because <laughs> that is the kind of thinking that leads to Skynet, people. I'd like it, to point out that the funniest thing that happened there is, now when Raiden says press releases, she means fictional press releases within the fictional world, Domino being the app, fictional app within the fictional world. But there were actual companies who stumbled on these vide- videos and thought, despite all the disclaimers in the YouTube video description, thought that was real. It would get in touch with a fake Pemberley Digital. <laughs> there were real IT tech companies going, we would love to explore this app you have developed. Right, which is still not as funny as a... On, I think it was on io9 fanfic site. Somebody posted the first chapter to Pride and Prejudice as a Regency fanfic of the Lizzie Bennet Diaries. Oh, and people had to be a bought it. <laughs> Oh no! <laughs> oh, that's sad. That is sad. That's it's a sad state that's of affairs. It's a sad, sad state of affairs. Oh. So, at the time we're recording this, by the time we get this posted, we will see what the fallout from this is. Um, Lizzie has found out that Darcy is the one who brought down the website because obviously the website was brought down. And she finally made the decision to call him in the most hysterical, awkward way, awkward voicemail ever, which I identify as because that is exactly the face I make when I leave voicemails for which I have no script prepared. <laughs> it's very jiffable, this show. Very yeah. jiffable. <laughs> and we haven't mentioned this, but there, Bingley. Actually, Bing Lee is the most adorable person. Their Jane is great also. Some of the secondary characters are amazing. Yeah. Fun. Jane is great. Charlotte is great. I mean, actually, I've found everybody, all the casting, to be great. Mm-hmm. Especially Ricky Collins. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> There's... There's a funny scene in the in the novel when Rick, when Collins proposes to uh, Elizabeth, he keeps on proposing even after she says no. So in the show, even after she turns out the job offer, he keeps on pulling out larger and larger envelopes <laughs> of like money and contracts. Yeah. So. so that's where we are with the Lizzie Bennet Diaries. Is it absolute perfection? No. no. Is it still you know good family fun? Yeah, I think so. I um, I I find that this kind of Tumblr ideal of the the per- this is an absolutely perfect person or this is an absolutely perfect show like that doesn't exist and you're always going to get disappointed. Oh my God, shut up! Are you saying Tumblr exaggerates things? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. 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 Yes. Maybe a little. But honestly, if this were eligible for any kind of Emmy. Mary Kate Wiles for her work in the videos where the Lydia Bennett emotional abuse is shown through. Mm-hmm. 
I would put that up for an award because whatever else they did wrong, they were brutally right about an emotionally abusive relationship. Disappointing that that even though the show has has given us a textbook example of this is what emotional abuse looks like, the show doesn't seem to realize that's what they've done. The word abuse has not come up. Lizzie has talked has told Lydia you know he is incredibly manipulative. He has a history of manipulating people, but and Lydia is in counseling as of now. Um, but they haven't actually said this was emotional abuse. Probably they got scared off by the big theme. Mm-hmm. Which they wouldn't be the first show to kind of touch on a topic, but then get so scared of actually Doing fully it. naming it. Yeah, but there—that's the Lizzie Bennet Diaries. <laughs> that's the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, and yes, that's not- <laughs> <laughs> sorry, <laughs> for dinner. <laughs> this seems to happen every single time. No, it does. It really it does. does. Okay, we should just start crediting my mother. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a nice segue into our next topic. Right. Austin Land. Austin Land. Which I... It's a book? Austin Land. So, uh, Kaylee, have you read the book? I have a while back. I Shannon Hale's a young adult writer who mm-hmm. occasionally writes adult books. And Austin Land is one of them. And she's also written one called... Some, I can't remember what it's about. It's about a Mormon housewife who meets a Colin Firth-style movie star, which was rubbish. But her young adult novels are wonderful. And she, Austin Land has just been made into a movie produced by Stephanie Meyer. <laughs> yeah. uh, background, Shannon Hale and Stephanie Meyer are very good friends. So oh. basically everything that happens in terms of getting a movie made, she's gone that way. We are looking at the next Harvey Weinstein people. So Austin Land, let me pull this up here, uh, premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in January but the actual release, it doesn't, I don't see an actual release date yet. I don't know if it has one yet. Yeah, so it possibly doesn't have one. But like Kaylee, I have read the book. I'll be honest, I didn't like it. I didn't like it either. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> the Book Smugglers had a really fantastic review of it, which is one of the reasons I didn't review it, because theirs is so good. And it sort of just mentions that it's trying to be self-aware and it's kind of, it's failing. It's just ended up being very smug in places. It just didn't work for me. It wasn't very witty. It wasn't very interesting. I have one kind of specific problem with it, but I think I, I want to give a little summary because I'm, I'm sure there's a, a sizable chunk of our listeners who haven't read it. Um, Austin Land is, it's not one of those modern day adaptations. Instead, it's about um, a young woman who really is kind of in love with it, with Mr. or the idea of Mr. Darcy. She's obsessed She's with it. She's specifically in love with the Colin, Colin Firth version of BBC adaptation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. And it's it stalled her life. So a, I think a great aunt or a relative of that sort, um, when uh, this elderly relative passes away, she leaves her not money, but a ticket to a very expensive, very exclusive resort called Austin Land, where for, I think, a month, something that you get to live as a character in an Austin novel, you dress up fully in Regency clothes, you give up your cell phones and other technologies, you live in this mansion with other people, with other women who are also there to experience this, and actors are hired to fill out the roles. And the idea is you are guaranteed a, an Austin romance, a courtship. Um, and, yeah. Um... <laughs> 
and the the plot in the novel is that she's there and she kind of it's not what she expected so she kind of hates it but then she loves it and there's this actor who snubs her and is maybe prejudicial oh or prideful but then oh no he's actually he's there's a mr darcy actor and there's uh a gardener who she's not in the quote-unquote servant class um personnel they're not supposed to get involved with but she sneaks into the guardhouse where modern technology and they make out and but then he's not what he seems he's the wickham character (laughs) and in the end she ends up with one of the guys so it's a romance but here's what the book novel never covers that disturbed me a great deal is that these women come there they're guaranteed that an actor will woo them and possibly go further they're writing about male prostitution. Nobody seems to be aware of this. Not the characters in the book, not the writer who wrote the book. I'm just sitting there as a reader going, they're paying these men to have sex with these women? Nobody's going to say that. Um, it's, it's quite unsettling. It doesn't help that the book isn't particularly well written, which is such a shame because Shannon Hale's a wonderful writer, but here it's just really inconsistent and lazy. And she's written a sequel to it as well, which I haven't read, obviously. But I just, I don't, this doesn't work for me at all, not just because it's male prostitution, but um, there's also the fact that she's sort of ashamed, supposed to be ashamed of the fact that she's a big fan of this series. And it's, it's a BBC classic. It wouldn't be something you'd be ashamed of. I mean, if yeah. it was, I don't know, porn. She maybe, hides the DVD when company's over. Why? Why? It, it's not a dildo. You're not a big <laughs> sex toy. It's like, maybe it's so sexual for her that she's forgotten it's not actual porn. But even then, it just it's it's kind of strange, actually, as a book. And it's, it really it's is. It reinforces a lot of sort of the lazy cliches and stereotypes that I don't like about the quote-unquote chiclet genre. And in terms of sort of trying to subvert or play with Austin tropes, it failed for me on that level as well. But I feel like there could probably be a pretty interesting movie out of this if they kind of strip down a lot of that stuff and just focus on the central cron- uh, premise. So... It might work. I don't know if I would pay to see it. Here's here's the thing. I actually am curious about the movie because this wouldn't be the first time where I strongly disliked the book and thought the movie was just a better product. Th- that's happened. You know, there's a kind of snobbery um, in the opinion that, oh, the, well, the book is always better. But that's not actually true. There are... The Devil Wears Prada. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> I, I completely agree with that. So there are actually movies which take books that aren't that good and that have problems and then the movie cleans it up and, and it puts out you know a pretty good product so i i suspect that, that this is a good candidate for that that this could happen here the the the, the movie could end up being <laughs> better than the book was it's not that hard to be better than this book I, i'm gonna tell you <laughs> now the movie stars uh carrie russell as the main character and J.J. Field is the main uh, male lead. And the funny Austin connection there is that he was in the recent Northanger Abbey adaptation. Oh, he's adorable. He's very yeah. pretty. He's Henry mm-hmm. Tilney. So he's already uh, an Austin actor in a way. Mm-hmm. The cast, actually, the entire production's quite interesting. It's also got Jennifer Coolidge and Brett McKenzie from Flight of the Concords in it. And Jane um, James Alice. Has... And Jane Seymour. Sure. Yeah. Okay. And well, it's directed by a woman, it's written by a woman, it's produced by a woman. I, that, that woman is Stephanie Meyer, who's, you know, uh, You on. know what, if but, she can <clears throat> throw some of her millions around to make more <laughs> women-centric movies, okay. 
Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm okay with that. Yeah. Maybe something um, good can come out of <laughs> You must pay for your sins, Stephanie Meyer. <laughs> <laughs> no, but... well, you know, she's producing involved. this. She's not writing it. So, but her production, I mean, let's face it. Stephanie Meyer is, she fetishizes happy endings. Oh, yeah. Right. And we, we've spoken about this in, uh, I think, uh, in Noel's episode, or she, he might have said it elsewhere on a podcast where she would, she won't write a sequel to one of her books because she doesn't want to spoil the happy ending she gave to her characters there. But I mean, this project, this book, Austin, it was already a happy ending to begin with. So I think when we give this to her, she could actually be pretty good about producing, you know, the direction in which she, I don't know how much control she has of the direction being a producer, not actually a director. Um, but I don't think her name being attached here is necessarily a bad thing. I mean, the, name, the reason it's attached to this is because she wanted her friend's movie to get made, and mm. she's got the money and the name recognition to get it made. So, so yeah. she's already attached to a couple other projects, including um, an adaptation of the YA novel Anna Dressed in Blood, which is a really interesting choice because that's a pretty violent book. So I'm wondering how much production sort of control she's going to have over these adaptations. <sighs> It's interesting. I mean, they'll clean it up because it's for teenagers, obviously. But still, but I'm very interested. Was Anna shows. Dressed in Blood a YA to begin with? I yes. know what it's about, but I haven't read it. I know it's about Anna Dressed in Blood being a ghost, the name of a ghost. So it's a paranormal. Yeah, it's YA, so. So obvious why Stephanie Meyer would. Can you imagine a world where we're just having turning out these paranormal YA romances all produced by Stephanie Meyer? Mm-hmm. There's a new one every year. I want her to get into a fight with Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> oh, I would. I would put money on Meyer. <laughs> I would. I would watch that dragged down fight in the street. It would be amazing. I would make a movie of that. <laughs> <laughs> so that's Austinland. That's I mean, Austinland. We can't say much about the movie. Obviously, being the movie is not out to the general public yet, but. <sighs> yeah, if you kind of want to read the book prior to it, I don't think you have to. <laughs> I would pass. I would. I would, I, I would pass. seriously pass, and I would read. I would read Shannon Hale's books for teenagers. They're far superior. Unless you have this morbid curiosity about this, <laughs> after what we've said, uh, unless it, like pick it up maybe in a discount bin or something. But it, I'd hate to to do that to books. But yeah, this this isn't. But we'll see what kind of movie comes out of it, because a lot of movies have come out of Austin, and not just period adaptations. Uh, but we're gonna get into those. And maybe we can segue into them now. Right. Um, so, obviously, the the iconic Pride and Prejudice adaptation is the 1995 um, BBC with Jennifer... How do we, how do we pronounce her last name? Ely. And Colin yeah. Firth. Mm. And um, it's basically... it It's a shot for shot. This is what the book says. This is what you see. This is what the book says. This is what we see. Um, I'm except the book never says he is naked in a wet white shirt, but I'm perfectly right, fine seeing that. <laughs> but that's okay. That's okay. And I, it's iconic. It's basically perfect. There, it's always a good time for Colin Firth in a well tried, well tied cravat, or always. a wet shirt, or a wet shirt, or both. Yes. <laughs> 
Sorry, that was my dad this time. I'm going to work my way through the entire family. <laughs> no, we just need the dog. Right. No, he's here. We can get him sorted out as well. Uh, well, right. you know, off-camera parents, that's an Austin thing. That is an Austin thing. Um, I... No, let's let's talk about the character of Mrs. Bennett after we've kind of discussed the the 2005 Kara Knightley. Because here's the thing: there's there's we have the original BBC uh, miniseries, which is gorgeous, um, and then we have the Sense and Sensibility movie that's late 90s as well, right? That's also 95. No, also 95. Yeah, that one is a film as opposed to a miniseries, so having a shorter time frame. It has a similar aesthetic, but unlike that miniseries, it did have to cut some things. Mm-hmm. It's not a bad... I, I believe Emma Thompson actually wrote the script. Didn't she win the she, Oscar for the script? Yes, she did. She did, right. She did. So, so then there's those two adaptations. And then in the 2000s, we have kind of a new wave yeah. of adaptations. We started with the Keira Knightley Pride and Prejudice film... Which was right, kind of which... the reverse to those series in that this was a film and not a series. So this is the the... The thing where things are condensed and cut down. And when I first heard about it, I was like, really? But the BBC is perfect. We don't need this. Not that the BBC was first, mind you. There are black and white adaptations of this. There are black and white adaptations. There's, um, but the BBC was perfect. Why do we need this? And then I went to go see it and I was like, okay, that was good. And I think there was a wave of kind of masterpiece theater TV movies. Yeah, ITV, the rest of the ITV did a whole series. Um, but I, I want to discuss the, the Kira Knightley Pride and Prejudice mm-hmm. a little bit more. Um, what I really like about it and what made it stand as different from the BBC is that instead of doing things like you know, here here are the whole conversations taken from the book in the room that the book says is it really made it did a lot of showing instead of telling. Mm-hmm. So instead of Lizzie sees Pemberley for the first time and like Jennifer Ely said, well, I could have been mistress here if I hadn't fucked that up. What you get is Kira just giving it a look and then make, giving this half hysterical laugh wow. giggle <laughs> yeah exactly um it's... joe wright directed that and he there's an interesting quote where he he was talking about taking on this project and he said he was hesitant at first because he he's not he hadn't read it and he felt that to him austin was always this kind of older stuffier literature literature right and he was a grittier uh director who commented on on today's kind of social issues and then he did read her and he realized she did comment on the social issues Mm -hmm. of her day that's what she did so i can do this yeah and i think he did i think his vision is a a good one i like what he did with the bennett family like the sisters really being sisters those scenes of them laughing together which i Mm -hmm. which the bbc original adaptation kind of lacks but he read between the lines in, in a very perceptive way. Yeah. And, like, yes, of course, Lady Catherine de Bourgh coming in the middle of the night to have her confrontation oh, with Lizzie <laughs> is totally ridiculous, but it fits Completely in ridiculous. Her, her feeling that she is so far above the Bennets that propriety be damned. 
damned. She doesn't need to listen to the rules when it comes to them because they're going to fuck with her life. Fine, I'll fuck with theirs. And then there's uh, Darcy and Elizabeth meet half undressed on wandering the moors. Wandering the fields. Yeah. And I mean, yes, it's <laughs> no, that's not how it happened in the book, but we don't no, need another ha- shot for shot of what happened in the book. We have the BBC version. Yeah, we, we need a half undressed Matthew McFadden, for which I'm eternally grateful. Yeah. <laughs> and by half undressed, I mean fully dressed by our standards, but practically naked by, you know, the eight. By, by Regency standards. <laughs> and running in the rain. Cause that's and running in the rain. Oh, yeah. And... Dramatic rain. And the almost kiss proposal. It's very sexually charged. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know what? I think it was a good addition to the Pride and Prejudice adaptation pantheon. Yeah. I thought that Matthew McFadden did a really excellent job at socially awkward Darcy. Like, Colin Firth is incredibly reserved. Matthew McFadden, he's like, he's literally like, I, I don't know how to act around people. <laughs> like, what? What? Oh. Poetry is not the food of love, so then what do you encourage to... Then what do you suggest to encourage affection? I'm asking for a friend. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And following that, so the ITV miniseries, which did... Okay, I know... So there was Northanger Abbey, and there was a Persuasion, and there was Emma, and Nancy... So I think they actually covered the entire... They covered the whole thing. The whole Um, thing. Where should we start? <laughs> you know, okay, let's start with persuasion. persuasion. Yeah, that's what I thought. The only version of persuasion I was able to watch, um, I have the 2007 um, from Netflix right in my house right now, but I haven't watched it. I watched the 95 mm. with Kieran Hines, and I love Kieran Hines. He was great. <laughs> he I, was great. No, it's it's Kieran Hines and Amanda Root. Yeah, it's I didn't a good like version. Her. I, I haven't seen that one. I've only seen the Sally Hawkins one from. Kieran Hines is really good. Is really Kieran good. Hines is really good because, yeah, <sighs> residual um, Rome feelings. But, like, I spent the entire movie going, "Oh my god, okay, Bath is pretty, but I am so bored with these people." See, I it's one of my favorite Austen books. Um, so I like Anne. I I just I don't know. I like the book. Like, this is, I guess, a somewhat more mature book. And that it doesn't, Anne doesn't have the sparkle and wit of Elizabeth Bennet, and she's basically the quiet daughter, right? But she doesn't come off as entirely put upon. Mm-hmm. I think her friends, uh, kind of like her godmother, are trying to make her out to be more put upon than she feels. She has a strong sense of duty. But so bas- the, the story of persuasion being that Anne, when she was. Um, 18, possibly slightly older, but very young, refused an offer of marriage from the man, or rather broke an engagement with a man she truly loved because her family felt that it wasn't a good match for her. Um, And Anne has a strong sense of responsibility and duty. So she did as the family requested, but really she really did love him and she continued loving him. And 10 years later, he shows up in the neighborhood again and he's now rich and successful, whereas her family, because her father is stupid and the spendthrift is in decline and she knows that she doesn't have beauty or really anything particular to make her stand out. So she's, she's kind of in quiet despair because she really loves him. Now she has to watch him be 
you know, flirting with other women because now everybody wants him. Mm-hmm. And he, and he's he's still pissed at her. He's pissed at her, and he's he thinks he wants revenge. And throughout the book, it's basically him coming to the realization that he's pissed because he also still loves her, and he just wants to hurt her like she hurt him. And when he realizes, uh, he almost finds himself you know, under obligation to propose to another woman because of a public flirtation, he realizes that's not what I want. I still want Anne. But of course, there's a happy ending in the end where it all works out. And them being now both adults and having both having money, uh, sufficient money for this not to be an impoverished marriage, there's really no impediment anymore to them doing whatever the hell they want. I like in the new adaptation. I like some of it, but it has this it tries to inject drama in strange ways. Like the, the ending hinges on the fact that he, that the hero Captain Wentworth overhears Anne speaking about um, the durability of a woman's love compared to a man's. And he writes her as he oversee, he writes her a letter where, where he basically says, Oh, don't think that I've abandoned you. I've never loved anyone but you. And she reads the letter. And then as she's walking home, she runs into him and kind of basically says, Oh yes, I love you too. Here. The letter is kind of narrated in a voiceover as she frantically runs through the streets of Bath, trying to find him. Oh, I've Why? seen that, Jeff. <laughs> Why does she have to dash back and forth? What, what is the rush here? It's weird. It didn't quite work for me. But most of it, uh, but, you know, as usual, it had pretty costumes. These have beautiful music. Mm-hmm. The new Sense and Sensibility miniseries having the most gorgeous orchestral soundtrack ever. It's I, true. I watch, rewatch that regularly, I think, just to listen to the music in the background. Yeah. So, and we can talk, the, the new Sense and Sensibility. The thing is, I feel like the Emma Thompson one, Emma Thompson was a little old for the role, let's face it. <laughs> Eleanor's 19. Emma Thompson was not 19. <laughs> she Right. Was, well, <laughs> one of the reasons that Ang Lee chose to age Eleanor up, because Emma did say that to him, is that it would be hard for modern audiences to accept a 19-year-old going, I'm a spinster. I'm stuck. I'm done. Which is a reasonable point. Um, I, yeah, okay, Emma was a little old for the role, but I don't care. See, I love, I I like the that movie well enough, but I think the new miniseries, Hattie Morahan plays Eleanor, and I think she's wonderful in it. I think the casting is just really great in it in general. The casting is really... here. Here's my thing with the the more recent Sense and Sensibility, is that oh, I cut my Austin teeth on Emma Thompson, and that Ellen Rickman like was <laughs> the perfect Colonel Brandon. Okay. He was perfection. And if I hadn't had all of that in my head when I watched the the more recent, I like the more recent one, it's really good. Of course it's really good. Um I certainly think that Dan Stevens, even though I'm still pissed with him about how he left Downton Abbey, made a better Edward than Hugh Grant did. Because that's not hard. Um <laughs> But I was just still just kind of like, it's, it's, but it's not Emma. It's not, Hmm. it wasn't as good as the version I prefer. 
which is still not me saying that it was bad because it was really good. And the music was so pretty. And the music is fantastic. <laughs> and then there is the uh, the Emma with from Garai. <laughs> Emma has, I think Emma has more mo- like by modern day. Let's extend to maybe like nineties and all the two thousands. Emma probably has more versions than all of the others because it has. Uh, the Gwyneth Paltrow and the Kate Beckinsale, and now has the Romola Garai version. Mm-hmm. Why does Emma get all of the remakes and Clueless? Well, and I mean, there's we'll we'll touch on the the modern. Um, um, the other modern I don't know. Yeah. I think. Well, like I said, I think Emma as a story is just the most adorable thing. <laughs> and, it really is. Um, I love Johnny Lee Miller as Mr. Knightley. I love Johnny Lee Miller as anything. It's but I, I, I will say this. Of the three versions I, I mentioned, I think Romola, the Romola Garai version is the best. Mm-hmm. Oh. I think Emma can be a tough one to do because it's very easy to make Emma a completely insufferable character. There is an actual... the reason that my best friend absolutely loves the novel. Uh, but I think Garai pretty much nails how to do it properly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Laura Linney um, introduces the master, does a little in, in, introductory pieces for Masterpiece when it airs on TV. And she quotes Austin from, I believe, a letter Austin wrote um, about this book where she says, It's about a heroine nobody but me is going to like. <laughs> so Austin knew exact, was very aware of who she wrote and uh, mm-hmm. how the character was coming off. And yeah, like because it's easy to just she's a spoiled rich girl with spoiled right. rich girl problems and a whole heaping lot of, you know, rich privilege. Right. But what what I like about Emma the character is that yes, she is a spoiled rich girl with spoiled rich girl problems, but she has a really strong sense of of duty to her community and to her family. She runs the house. She takes care of her father. Mm-hmm. She makes sure that that the poor in her community are being taken care of as as the gentry of that period does. Emma's uh, not mean. She's not even close to. She's she's very solicitous. Yes. And when she decides that somebody has a problem, by God, she's going to fix it. My God. <laughs> it's kind of strange. Emma is that kind of funny character where she's a young girl, but she loves playing the matron. Mm-hmm. She loves being the mother of the neighborhood in some ways. It's even to her to her own mother figure, um, to her to the governess who raised her. She she tr- kind of likes to take the upper hand. So, and it's really, I mean, the book does not condone this. The book is very clearly about her, you know, falling into reality hard and having to come to terms with being wrong about almost everything so but yeah Romola Garai is just very charming in that role and um yeah it's it's it's, again it did a good job with adapting it in a way that shows her being wrong but not so annoying that you just want to turn it off and and not watch the rest of it Mm -hmm. and I almost skipped with this one but yes there are Mansfield Park adaptations (laughs) I've only seen the Billy Piper one, which is one of the ITV ones, but that was years ago when it first aired. There's yeah, for Billy Piper. Boring. There was one. Oh, hold on. I will. Um, uh, 1999 I just... film. 
Yeah, I just watched that a couple of days ago. I'm trying and to remember. It was still the... boring. Uh, Dude, James purifies in it, though. <laughs> <laughs> For like yeah, half a your... minute, and you and Johnny Lee Miller. Yes. Yeah, Johnny Lee Miller is in a lot of these. Like a lot of the actors intersect in the funniest ways, right? Well, that's because Great Britain it's has like British. 50 actors at a time. Yeah. It's, it's a requirement. Francis O'Connor is the actor. But it's the the what's it called? It's ninety. It's ninety nine Mansfield Park with Francis O'Connor as Fanny Price and Johnny Mil- Johnny Lee Miller as the male lead. Um, that one. It, that adaptation knew that Fanny Price, the main character, is boring and a nothing. So they kept like all of her lines and actions, but they wrote her as if she basically were Jane Austen, like this aspiring writer with personality. It's very strange. <laughs> it's very strange. It didn't work. I was still bored. Whereas the 2007 uh, Billy Piper Mansfield Park, she's basically she plays it completely straight. <laughs> But that's, it's basically, she's supposed to be the central character, but I remember nothing of her. She's nothing to do. She's, she's such a nothing. No, occasionally she makes a judgy face. It's, it's very strange. It's, that's why it's my least favorite. Uh, I wish I could talk more about it, but there's not, I mean, there's plot, but it's nothing like the rest of the Austins where, you know, you have your heroine and she's involved in the story and she does get happy in the, in the end. And this one, yes, yeah, she gets a happy ending, but she just kind of is moved through the plot by forces of the plot, doing nothing, thinking nothing. Why, you know, I don't know what to do with the Mansfield Park. Why? <laughs> Which is why we can safely segue off that into the modernizations. Yeah. Like Clueless. Clueless. Is it uh, I just watched it last night. I mean, it was like such a perfect um, time capsule of my high school not really my high school experience because i didn't go to a rich california high school but it like this sort of defined who we were as a generation i don't know how bad that sounds um but clueless really kind of brought in a lot of language that we used as high schoolers um as if <laughs> Way harsh time. <laughs> and brought back the the high school comedy in in a new way. Um and okay. and one of the things that is kind of universally true in all of the Emma adaptations is that the relationship between Emma and her father is always a really really kind of deep one. Mm. I think I'm trying to think. Okay, Emma does not have a mother. Anne in Persuasion also doesn't have a mother. So that, but that has that is a con. That's the opposite. That's the conflict relationship with the father. No, Elizabeth has. I'm trying to think through parental parental relationships in Austin and who else is missing a parent. Now we have the opposite in Anne, where Anne lost a parent who was the only one that connected to her in Persuasion, and then she's alone. Whereas Emma. Her mother died when she was basically an infant, mm-hmm. but her father. But she has a really good relationship with her father. Yeah. So she's really, um, Pride and and Prejudice. Sensibility. The father dies at when the daughters are grown up, so they mourn him. Yeah. And in Pride and Prejudice, she has both her parents, but really the father is the one who's 
the person that she connects to and loves the most. Right. I mean, it's stated outright that yeah. Mrs. Bennett has no idea what to do with Lizzie. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, so, you know, Austin parent relationships between her heroines and parents are actually pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sure there's a dissertation out there somewhere. <laughs> I hope so. And then I haven't actually seen Bride and Prejudice. I didn't get a chance to see that one either. So I'm, I'm no, I, I've so, heard that the the Darcy version in that is very it's not good. And I'm trying to think of any other. I mean, there's of course the Bridget Jones Diaries. So there's there's a lot of attempts to modernize Austin, which I think just shows how 200 years later people still connect to her books very deeply. Mm-hmm. Like people, it's people want to spend time on them. Like for example, writing fanfic, which then gets published. Uh, right. <laughs> Such as to okay. varying degrees of, of success. success. <laughs> Full disclosure, internet. As part of my homework for this episode, I was supposed to read Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. I downloaded the ebook sample. I made it through a chapter and a half. And I'm sorry, internet. I couldn't do it. Not even for you. It's just the writing's bad. Uh, I made this comment to Raiden earlier. The seams are so bad, it's like a Frankenstein's monster. <laughs> the seams are showing. <laughs> because in, I thought it would be very campy and fun. But instead, um, the author wrote the story about, you know, them being zombie hunters and zombie killers. And it's... And it... And the bits of Austin that he kept no longer fit with the personalities his zombie-killing Bennett sisters had. Like Elizabeth, that scene, that iconic scene at the beginning of Pride and Prejudice where Darcy insults Elizabeth because he won't dance with her. And in the book, Elizabeth laughs it off because that's what she does. She delights when something absurd and ridiculous happens. And, you know, screw him. That's her attitude. This Elizabeth reaches for her knife so she can open his throat. And yet... A paragraph later, she's still described as funny and witty and delighting in things that are absurd. What? (laughs) No. And then he randomly changes lines that don't have to change because of the zombie thing, but he changes them anyway. So that line where Lydia says, I'm not afraid of Bingley dancing with me because even though I'm the youngest, I'm the tallest. This one is, even though I'm the youngest, I'm the most sexually attractive or something like that. It's just, it's weird. It doesn't work so yeah i'm sorry to anyone who thinks i should have given it more of a chance because it's great but i couldn't (laughs) the entire let's shove monsters into it trend is one of those things that you see and think hey that sounds quite interesting i've never seen that done before and then you start thinking stop please just stop now so i've got page open on goodreads of all of the monster mashes as they're called so let's go for the austin ones there's pride and prejudice and zombies there's sense and sensibility and sea monsters there's Mr. Darcy Vampire, of course. <laughs> of course. I'm surprised it took them this long, to be honest. Mansfield Park and Mummies. Huh? Naturally. Okay. Well, yeah, that, that can totally only improve sense. Fanny Price. <laughs> the Immortal Jane Austen. Emma and the Vampires. Pride and Platypus. <laughs> okay, I have to read that one. That sounds amazing. Vampire Darcy's Desire, of course. Uh, North Hanger Abbey and Dragons and Angels. Okay. Oops. Um, can, can we pause for a minute? Because I really have to pee. <laughs> and this list gets worse and worse. No, oh, but nothing, nothing tops the platypus. I've got to read that one. Sorry, I'm clicking on this page. Um, 
shape-shifting demons mingle with Australian wildlife. Of course. <laughs> I have to get this book. Mr. Darcy's dreadful long. Jesus! Part of Platypus, Mr. Darcy's dreadful secret. <laughs> Look at the platypus on the front. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's brilliant. Okay, and I believe in this trend again. You've won me over, Vera Nazarian, whoever you are. Oh, uh, there's a wolf howling with like lightning, and then just the platypus. I think is very, I think he's like growling. He's got <laughs> the angry look. I will tear you apart with my beak. That's brilliant. In the description, it says. There are unwanted proposals, regency balls, foolish sisters, seductive wolves, matchmaking mothers, malodorous skunks, general lunacy, and the demonic onslaught in the entire wild animal kingdom. Of course. <laughs> Why wouldn't there be? Oh, that's amazing. Alright, that's so much better. Right, Prejudice <laughs> and Platypus, you have justified the existence of the Monster Mash. Just by virtue of the cover. We will link this cover in show notes because this cover has to be exposed to the general public. Okay. Oh. And then, of course, there are the sequels in which Lizzie and Darcy have sex. Because it's not enough for us to write fanfic in which Lizzie and Darcy have sex. We have to publish it and make people pay for it. Man, restraint and subtlety is so crap. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I read Mr. Darcy's Diary by Amanda Grange. And that did not involve a sex scene. In fact, I deliberately looked for ones that weren't all about the Lizzie Darcy triple X rated porno. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I did want a, a version of Darcy's Darcy's view of the whole thing. Darcy's um, Midnight Sun, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> yes, only this one was actually finished. <laughs> Burn. <laughs> and I, I thought that one was was pretty good. Um, I'm kind of annoyed with how much I paid for it, but not overly. Mm-hmm. It does kind of put. Of course, I, I read it like four weeks ago, um, but it. It is interesting to see Darcy, like, how he's justifying, how he fucks around with Bingley and Jane's relationship, and why he why he thinks that was a good and reasonable thing to do. <sighs> and I also read Death Comes to Pemberley by P.D. James, um, which originally, I when I read the, the back cover... It made it sound like Wickham was the person who got murdered. And I was like, yes! (laughs) (laughs) Okay! (laughs) Sold! And then it turns out I totally read that wrong and he's the murder suspect. But of course he's not the murderer because Because, that would be too much to ask for. (laughs) Right. But it did kind of give an insight into what Lydia and Wickham's marriage would be like. Um... I thought I thought that was well written, because um, clearly that that is not a happy marriage. No. <laughs> um, and Lydia, as written, as originally written by Austin, I think is a suitable punishment for Wickham. 
<laughs> but Wickham is not really a suitable punishment for Lydia. Yeah, Lydia has very few redeeming, no redeeming qualities really in the original adaptation. No, no. Um, but even so, Wickham is still not. I mean, Wickham. Neither does Wickham really. No. Lydia's life is kind of a textbook example of be careful what you wish for mm-hmm. because you just might get it. And she got what she wanted. And now it's going to suck. <laughs> and, well, that's Jane Austen. And Jane Austen is a gift that keeps on giving because I'm sure we'll see plenty of more adaptation, modernizations, sequels, prequels, fanfic publishing from that well. That's right. But, hey, it's public domain. Technically, they can get away with it. Yeah, no, they can. And you know what? Her books are great. So we love some more than others. Like, I mean, all of us have a favorite. But I actually think she. Like, there's just even 200 years later. She's later. She's still funny. Her dialogue is snappy, and her characters are great. I mean, there's a reason we continue to love her. Mm-hmm. And um, that kind of brings us to something else I wanted to talk about in this episode. Um, a couple of weeks ago, there was a post on the Fresh Air, NPR Fresh Air Tumblr, mm-hmm. about the the top 100 podcasts that are on um, Stitcher and iTunes. And as of mid-February 2013, out of the top 100, 71 are hosted by men. 11 are hosted by women, of which 3 are just 60 seconds long, and 9 are co-hosted by a man and a woman, and Mm -hmm. 9 other are news aggregation podcasts who alternate hosts. Mm -hmm. And that that is kind of one of the reasons that I wanted to start this podcast, was because I felt that there's not a lot of voices of women in geekdom. Mm -hmm. And we get kind of shunted off to the side or just, we're, you know, we're fake geek girls, constant vigilance and that <laughs> kind of thing. And so I wanted to be able to put our voices out there. That's right. And that's one of the things that Austin did was put the stories of women out there. Um, I read in, I think it was the the book of Call the Midwife that if you look through all of Jane Austen's work, she never includes a conversation of two men by themselves because she had no idea what that would sound like. Mm-hmm. And so all of her stories are necessarily, this is the female experience in this time and being concerned about who you're going to marry, how you're going to support yourself it seems very limiting and very traditional if you look at it through the lens of right now where we all have all of these choices of how we're going to support ourselves but her characters were were stuck in a very narrow um paradigm mm-hmm. and um after Raiden's mentioned this you know lack of women in podcasts actually started to think, you know, do I know any? Now, only two really came to mind. Made of Fail has uh, another all-female podcast, Strangers from the Internet. So, way to go, Made of Fail, <laughs> for being progressive. <laughs> uh, and 
there's a podcast called Grammar Girl um, that is hosted by a woman. And those are the only two that came to my mind where I try to think of female in podcasting right away. Right. And I listen to um, stuff, stuff You Missed in History Class, which is hosted by two women. I don't know if that has always been true because they kind of rotate hosts as time goes. And Stuff Mom Never Told You, which are both How Stuff Works supported podcasts. And those are the only ones I, I mean, Fresh Air is hosted by Terry Gross, but not, not all the time. She usually takes Fridays off. And if she's gone for a week, then Dave Davies takes over. And he's okay. <laughs> um, speaking of internet things, I think this is a good segue to my tech rec because this is topical. This is very topical. topical. So, as we know, Google, in its infinite wisdom, has announced the retirement of Google Reader. I don't know what they were drinking or smoking to come to the conclusion that this is a product they no longer need to put out. But I suppose there's nothing. Literally, when you that day when you logged into Google Reader, it would actually pop up a message telling you that, yeah, we're shutting down. Get your shit and get out. Um, almost literally like that. <laughs> it, it told you how to download um, your Google Reader being the an RSS reader. So uh, as my duty calls for, I went looking for alternatives so I could recommend them to you in uh, this month's Tech Rec. Um, so far, I would say that Feedly.com is the one I'm probably going to stick with. It was very funny. You could tell that this happened because as you go to the websites, they would load slow and the official Twitter feeds of a lot of these um, other RSS readers would actually say, oh my God, you know, we're updating our servers. <laughs> we're going to be ready for this influx of customers. Like they knew what was coming. Um, so yeah, Feedly.com uh, has... A web reader, which is what I was looking for. I, I liked Google Reader being a web reader, and I wanted to continue using it that way. But it also does have um, apps for, um, I think, Android and iPhone. And yeah, for iPhone, iPad, and Android, that's where they add, their mm. apps are. So for the mo- I haven't tried them, but I know they, they do exist. Uh, there's a couple of others I've tried and didn't stick to, but I will link you guys um, in the show notes uh, to a post from howtogeek.com um, to their ru- fairly recent rundown. The only one on the rundown that's not applicable, any- well, they also have Google Reader, but uh, Feed Demon, if you guys were looking into it, is apparently also shutting down, but everything, um, everything else such as news... Let me uh, pull it up. News Blur. That was another one that I considered. That that one seems to be an alternative people are going to. So there, there's 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 a few. Feedly.com being the one I'm probably going to stick to. So that will be my tech rec for this episode. Excellent. I'm still really annoyed because I like my Google. I don't I, like change. <laughs> I, I, I'm quite upset about that because I'm very used to Google Reader and I like it and they had some stupid quote about social media is where people get that now no no it's not true Twitter is not going to replace an RSS feed. The, the 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 utility of Google Reader for me I don't know why they think it would very annoying uh oh the Kickstarter campaigns why don't we mention those really quickly right um, so Kevin, executive producer of Made of Fail Productions, has started a theater company because he totally needs more to do. 
And they are planning on putting up a production of the uh, Terry Pratchard's Weird Sisters. Oh, the production company is called More Bacon. Because more bacon is always better than less bacon. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anyway, so they're doing a Kickstarter to help fund the production, which we'll link to in the show notes. Um, I think they have three weeks to go at this point and just broke $2,000. So if any of you could kick into that, that would be awesome and help support yet another made a fail related project. But the big Kickstarter news on the internet oh was <laughs> Veronica Mars. <laughs> I donated to that pretty much as soon as it came up on my. I I love the TV show. I didn't love the third season that much, but yeah, it no, was still no. it was great, and it made kind of history. I I actually checked. I went to Rob Thomas's Twitter feed to track this. It took ten hours to reach his original goal of two oh, million dollars. No, it was slightly over seven. It was about ten. Okay, it, it it was the world record breaker for making a million, which is about four hours. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't kicked into this one yet, but I will. Um, they have made their goal, but as you'll be able to see in the video, um, the more money, the more things they can do. Like Logan, Logan Eccles, <laughs> son of a bitch. Yeah, <laughs> um, brooding in space. So that could be fun. That video was uh, the video they they posted with their Kickstarter was uh, very funny. It was pretty good. It was pretty good. Um, yeah, it's there's been a lot of questions about the ethical implications of having people fund these properties owned by big name studios. I per- I honestly don't have a problem with this because how many times did fans say we have all of this money, please just give it to the creator so he can put the product we want out. Well, here it is. Here's that process. Yep. And um, Brian Fuller sent Rob Thomas a, a tweet, I believe, saying, can, can I call you later and talk to you about this whole Kickstarter process thing? Um, so it has been confirmed that Brian Fuller is looking into the logistics of a, a fan-supported Pushing Daisies movie. Mm-hmm. Um I think at this point, he hasn't had a chance to talk to any of the actors or the crew involved. He is just at the point of, now I'm going to talk to them because this might be a thing we can do. Um, so everybody, keep your pies on. <laughs> I see what I did there. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that, that might be a thing. Keep an eye on Brian Fuller's Twitter feed. I would really appreciate at least we get a couple seasons of Hannibal vs. Brian Fuller. I have waited a very long time for this show and I'm far too excited. And I'm surprised that everyone has not stopped following me on Twitter for just talking about it yet. Please just let me have a couple seasons of that show, NBC. Don't screw up another show for me, please. Oh, asking NBC not to screw something up is like asking... I know, asking... I know. <laughs> it's like asking your mom not to yell during a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that's sort of some catchphrase we have to get going. Mm-hmm. Does that cover everything we wanted to talk about? I think I did. Congratulations on us for getting through an entire Austin podcast without quoting the first line from Pride and Prejudice in a quirky manner. I thought about it, but I wanted to go. It with is the a text universally <laughs> acknowledged that every geek girl must be in want of a podcast. No, I don't think that's true. No, 
<laughs> I don't think that's a truth universally acknowledged. Um, no one who had ever seen the Anglophies in their infancy would have supposed them to be heroines. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not I true. I would that one. Yeah, that, that was a good one. <laughs> North Hanger Abbey people, it's the best. That's yeah. that's for the real Austin geek. geek. <laughs> that's right. you got to weed out the fake ones, you know. Constant vigilance. <laughs> also, there's 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 so much Austin that there's a few we haven't mentioned, so we'll just throw the names out there too, and uh, maybe show notes link to uh, Wikipedia pages. But there was Lost in Austin, right? Which I watched. Yeah, which it's is a, no, okay. You know what? No, I want to talk about this. The self-insert fanfic. <laughs> the self-insert fanfic. Okay, so Lost in Austin was a miniseries 2008. Does that sound right? Mm-hmm. Where a girl. From modern day London, Hammersmith loves Pride and Prejudice so much that there's a door in her bathroom that Lizzie Bennett comes through and she and Lizzie Bennett trade places. It's basically Austin land, except you go into the actual Austin book. Yes. And of course, she knows how the story is supposed to go. So she keeps trying to like shepherd everybody to their assigned places. And screwing it up worse. Screwing it up. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of char. It's it's a charming take on a self-insert fanfic. Right. If you look at it that way, it's it's very easy to enjoy. Yes. It it took me a while to kind of accept the conceit. Mostly, I was just like, "What the fuck am I? What is happening? I don't, I don't, I don't." Um, but Hugh Bonville plays Mr. Bennett, and Alex Kingston plays Mrs. Bennett, and they were both perfect mm-hmm. um yeah there's and another thing we haven't mentioned is there's a book and a movie of the jane austen book club which uh i don't know like i i think i like the movie slightly more than the book but this isn't an austin land situation this is a good book so if you can't get enough of austin that's another option for you to to read and to watch yeah <laughs> and there are several other adaptations or reimaginings including which i'm going to mention but i haven't read it but i really want to read it it's called For Darkness Shows the Stars by Diana Peter Freund. I'm sorry if I pronounced that incorrectly. And it's a post-apocalyptic version of Persuasion set in the Maori area of New Zealand. Wow. Oh, I want to read that. And I really, wow. really want to read this, but it's not available on Kindle UK. Someone please sort that out for me. But it's just interesting to see someone take the material and actually do something interesting with it. Because I read an Austin adaptation called Prom and Prejudice, see what they did there. <laughs> And the author was clearly so preoccupied with sticking to the source material that it just was incredibly boring and stagnant. And it was like, oh, here's this scene, but it's in modern day. Isn't that wacky? And oh, look, have every 17-year-old boy in this book talk like a 46-year-old man from the Regency era. Because that's not distracting at all. <laughs> yeah. So if you're going to do adaptation, there's there's being faithful and then there's just joining the dots. Right. <laughs> When in doubt, post-apocalyptic. Right. <laughs> um, we do know that the production team behind the Lizzie Bennet Diaries is are going to be adapting another book with the the vlog format or mm. another YouTube. They're doing series. Emma, right? Um, I don't think it's been confirmed exactly what they're doing. There's hints. But well, I've maybe. been told Emma, but people keep googling my blog for Lizzie Bennet Diaries Emma, so people might know something that they they don't know. Mm. I mean, I'm gonna give it a chance. I, I hope they have learned from some of the mistakes they made. So mm-hmm. we'll we'll see how it does. 
I'd be interested to see them do something non-Austin related. Mm-hmm. I, I've heard um, Jane Eyre thrown out. Mm-hmm. I've heard somebody threw out Wuthering Heights, which... Oh, God. <laughs> <sighs> um, no, I have so much to say about that. Will not. I look right. forward to so many more people missing the point of that one. Yeah. yeah. Um, like, I... I Seriously, I don't know who threw that out there, or if, or what the context was. If it was like a, oh, this could be interesting or deeply fucked up, or a, oh, I desperately want this. This is Bell and Edwards' favorite book, so it needs to be. Oh, oh. Uh, oh I, side I, note, side note. Um, I discovered that there is an adaptation of Northanger Abbey in which lead character is a twihard. <laughs> Why? What? Um, apparently the woman who is actually, doing these Austin adaptations Actually, is... you know what? Actually, yeah, I could see yeah. that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the reviews are be terrible. Linking that the, the show notes. Okay. <laughs> you know what? No, that I can see it. I, yes. see, I see it, yeah. As well, that's what's so sad. <laughs> we'll be linking that in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, I'll get that one for you. <laughs> <clears throat> so I, th- so I think, I think we're I- good. Covers it. Yep. This is Menier Austin Palooza. Good night, everybody. <laughs> we bid you farewell. We bid you farewell. Bye. You have been listening to Anglophies, a made of fail production.